Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Rob Eigner here. I'm excited to have the guests that we have on the show today. We have multiple topics to cover. So often the guests that I have are here for a singular reason. This person is here really for multiple reasons. Uh, He's an author. Uh, uh, on a leadership subject, which we'll talk about briefly. He's made a big pivot in his life and has moved his family from the United States to Europe. And we also have a real common thread, uh, which I'll reveal a little bit later. And given that we have such a unique thing going on in the world right now with the coronavirus and all the challenges that are going along with that, I'm going to be talking to all my guests, uh, starting with this one, about how you know their story and their experience and their strengths relate to what we're all challenged right now as, as humans, uh, connected human beings challenged with this universal issue right now. So I'm not putting too much on your shoulders, but uh, welcome, Allah Hutchins. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Rob. It's so great to be with you today. Thanks. So you wrote a book called Cracking the Leadership Code. How did that come about? And tell us what it's about. Sure. So I guess ever since I can remember, I've been fascinated by the question, you know, why do people do what they do? I have just been fascinated by people. I think we're very interesting and we're a crazily weird species. And so I've just studied people in all sorts of dimensions. So I I studied psychology for a while when I was in college. I also got very involved in theater and actually went to graduate school as an actor for three years, uh, in some ways putting myself under the microscope to learn more about human motivation and behavior. And from there, I transitioned into teaching, uh, teaching leadership skills in junior high schools and high schools, and then moving into the corporate world and have worked over the last 20 some odd years as a leadership trainer, consultant, facilitator, and coach. And So what I noticed as I kept working with more and more groups is that there were patterns that started to emerge, both patterns of behavior with great leaders, but also patterns of behavior of mediocrity. You know, like when people aren't doing stuff well, they do it for the similar reasons. And I was curious as to why these patterns were emerging and what was underneath those patterns. So I started taking notes of things I would hear or things I'd see. And those notes, I ended up turning into these blog posts and the blog posts ended up turning into chapters and the chapters ended up becoming this book. And the goal of the book is really to take 25 years of learning and lessons about leadership and distilling them in a really engaging and practical format to share with people so that I can, you know, so many of us want to be good leaders. And last time I checked, the studies say that only about 21% of people think their leaders are good. And last time I checked, 100% of leaders wake up every day and want to do a good job. No one wakes up and says, you know, I think I'll be mediocre today. No mm-hmm. one's thinking that. And yet the sad truth is a lot of us are, as, as leaders, need some work. And so my goal with the book is to help aspiring leaders who want to get better 
to accelerate their learning curve, right? To shorten that learning curve and, and ramp up their growth so that, you know, and leadership isn't a job title. It's, it's a way of being, it's like, we all need to lead. I mean, particularly with what's going on today, you know, how can I step up as much as, Hey, let me reach out to someone I haven't talked to and send them an email or a text or a quick phone call and say, Hey, you're in isolation. So how are you doing? Can I just check in? Just how much just a little action like that can go a long way. I, uh, uh, particularly with that last thing you said, and as it relates to the challenge that we're all facing with the coronavirus right now, I think that that human connection and that human empathy and, and being authentic with people right now is, I don't think anything's more important. I mean, and, and to me, that really is leadership is like reaching out to people and going, Hey, how you doing? I care about you. And <laughs> Hey, by the way, um, I'm going through what you're going through. I'm scared too. Here's how I'm coping with it. I yeah. think that is leadership in a way to just be able to be vulnerable and authentic and connecting. Yeah, well, completely. In fact, it's interesting that you use those words kind of connected and authentic and vulnerable because in the book, which obviously was written before this all broke out in the last week, the first principle of leadership is connection and the foundation of connection is empathy. Yeah, at its core, look, we're human beings and we are being tested to be more human than ever through this coronavirus issue challenge. And so that sense of reaching out and saying, hey, I'm scared, you know, basically we're all asking the same questions, which is what does this mean? What do I do? And there's something that is so comforting in having another human being normalize your experience to say, you know what? I'm scared too. I don't know what this means, but we're going to be in this together. And the more that we can connect and kind of hold each other and support each other through that, the more that we don't start to kind of lose it on our own. Because I know that for myself, when I feel isolated and alone, the fear the chattering of the fear can get worse and worse. So connection is such a key to leadership, both today, but all the time. So I, um, I am one of those people that gets up every day and wants to be a good leader to the organizations yeah. I lead. And uh, what I'm about to say is going to maybe sound like uh, not, not good leadership, but interesting that those words that I chose that you said were in your early chapters. I mean, just admission to the audience. I haven't read your book yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just interested in the subject. So I, I guess it makes me feel good that some of the words that I connect with also resonated with someone like you, who's done a lot of research on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what are some of the key things that you found? Uh, why don't you maybe say the first three or four things that were the most common positive threads to strong leadership and maybe the, mo the three or four things that are the most common negatives that bring down someone's leadership level. Sure, sure. Um, so some of the common positive things. So we talked about connection. So clearly great leaders have a sixth sense for people. So there's a sense of empathy. Another thing that's in common is that great leaders have this sense of self-awareness. They understand that leadership isn't about how do I think of myself, it's how do others perceive me. And so they understand that behavior counts for everything. So they're keen on enhancing their credibility. Great leaders, that means they are very clear on following through on their commitments and being people of integrity, that they do what they say they're going to do. Something as simple as showing up on time because that speaks volumes about who you are. So that's a couple of the things. Another thing that great leaders do is that they communicate their implicit assumptions explicitly. So what we found in the research, and you don't need to be a researcher to figure this out, is you know people were very good at many things. 
but mind reading is not one of them. And so, so often, so many of us expect other people just to kind of get our hints and our hopes. But what great leaders do is they actually call attention to the process in a very explicit way. Because when we have clear expectations, we can make sure that we're either on track meeting them or support people when we're not meeting them. So that's another key thing that great leaders do. And the last thing I'll say, and this has to do with collaboration, is that what great leaders recognize is they design environments where people can thrive. They understand that all of us as humans have some basic needs. And what they look to do is create environments that can help to satisfy some of those needs, such as the need for safety, Mm -hmm. the need for energy, the need for having a clear sense of purpose, and also the need for taking ownership. Again, I've yet to meet anyone who said, you know, I had this great leader, and the thing I loved about them the most was how much they'd micromanage me. I mean, right. said, said no one ever. What, what about recognition? How the, the people that are being led by the leader, how, how important did you find it was that the leader was able to recognize you know, talent or, or success? It is very important. You know, it's interesting. Gallup did some research on this. And what they found was that we should be, if we're leaders in a role that we're like a a fixed positional role in an organization, that we should be giving people some sense of appreciation at least every seven days. Now, I've shared that statistic with some people. They said seven days, I'd settle for seven weeks or seven months because some of us never hear it. So the idea is that in terms of appreciation and recognition, it's something that we have to do on a consistent basis. So for example, in a marriage, you wouldn't say, hey, I said I love you on your wedding day. That was 20 years ago. It still counts. No, you actually have to do it on a regular and frequent basis. So that's key. Uh, so I have a question. Um, and and you know, obviously, you're on this show. The name of it's Clear Choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say uh, there's someone who's a leader listening to this broadcast today. And by the way, I think we're all leaders, you know, big brothers and big sisters are leaders to their younger siblings and parents are leaders to their kids and teachers to et cetera, et cetera, bosses to employees. It goes on and on. We're all leaders in some way. So if there's a leader out there who's succeeding in leading their organization, they're casting a vision, they're supporting their people, but you know, there's going to be blind spots that any leader has some things that they're maybe not as good at as others. What would you say would be the decision tree they might need to make around their choices so they can make better choices around their leadership. Right. Well, this ties into the other question that you asked before, which is, you know, what are some patterns of particularly, you know, we talked about some of the successful things, but the poor leadership. And I think this ties into that quite well in that one of the things that gets in the way of a lot of people's leadership is this belief that it's up to me that somehow I am the most important person, right? Mm -hmm. And I have this assumption that I have to be the fixer. I have to be the problem solver. I have to be the final say. I have to be the one who knows everything, who can see everything. And And that is an antiquated model that really comes way back from the dawn of the industrial age. And then we're talking well over 120 years old at this point. And so that is a blind spot. If you're carrying around that belief, that means that somehow you're putting this burden on yourself that you need to be superhuman. And particularly in this day and age of technology, where information is spread out all over the world, you have to shift your focus. And instead of thinking of yourself as this commander, 
It's how can you be more of a facilitator? I love the word facilitate because it comes from the same word as facile, means to be make things easy. So how can you make things easier for people? And so instead of seeing yourself as the repository of information, how can you be the conduit and making sure that you're building relationships so information can move from where it is to where it needs to be? And I think if we start to think of ourselves as facilitators and less as these controlling commanders, it's going to serve everyone a lot better. So that's a, that's a great point. And it's a great question for people to use to self-reflect on, you know, what style of leadership do I have? How am I helping grow my people? I mean, one of the things I've always sort of prided myself on is trying to find people that truly are better than me at something, you know, yes. at whatever I'm hiring them for. Cause uh, I, you know, I don't want to hire the, I don't want to hire a CPA or whatever who I feel like I'm better at than that. Cause that, you know, like I want sure. someone who's expert. And so I want to find the recruiter who's expert at that. And the educator, the teacher trainer, that's excellent at that people that are better than me. And so I'm piecing together that all-star team around me. That yeah. feels like part of the leadership puzzle, at least from my perspective. Well, Rob, as you say that about looking for the team members that are better than you, what I'm hearing underneath that message is the willingness to put your ego to the side and that there's a certain level of humility to recognize, you know what, I actually want to find people who are stronger and smarter and better at these things than me. And for some leaders, That's they hard. see it's hard because they see it as a threat. Yeah. Right. Again, you know, the, the old joke is that, you know, B leaders are always hiring C people, right? Because they can never hire a B or an A. And so just realizing who are you comfortable surrounding yourself with? And a quick litmus test to know what type of leader you're dealing with is when you're around someone and they make you feel smart, they're probably, you're probably on the right track, right? We all know those people that when we're around, they make us feel smart and valued. And then there are other people or other leaders that we're around. We feel like we have to walk on eggshells and say exactly the right thing. Or they'll, or they'll find a way to take a cut at you. Exactly. Because their ego is being threatened. And the only way they can make themselves feel better is by pulling everyone else down a notch. And, yeah. you know, I think that's a choice that each of us has to make in terms now, of our own leadership style. This book sounds extremely um, useful and insightful. Is there any kind of workbook or workshop component to it? Like exercises for people to do? Or? There are. In fact, every chapter ends with a key takeaway box where all of the key insights, the principles, as well as the key practices for each of them is broken down into principle and then here are the bullet points. So we can go through every single chapter and here's the 10, 12, sometimes even 25 or 30 bullet points of how you can apply the lessons from that particular area, whether it's connection or communication or collaboration how you can apply those, those things in practice immediately. So yeah, it's, it's broken down to be very much of a comprehensive guide you can keep coming back to again and again. Is there, so last question on the book, is there a component or is there, is there one of those questions that resonated the most for you individually? One of those questions, gosh, they're all, it's one. I mean, for me, I think it starts with the mindset the whole first section of the book is all about the context of how did we end up in this leadership mess overall, you know, dating back to the inherited leadership legacy we have from the industrial age. And so for me, the big question around that has to do with, am I leading from a place of service or from a place of control? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, and I think I tie this up at the end of the book, is the big common theme is leadership isn't about you, it's about them. 
-hmm. And if you can operate from that place of service and realize that my job as a leader is to help the people that I lead, that I'm actually working for them, they're not working for me. That to me is the biggest and hardest shift to make. And once you do that and commit to that mindset, the other tools and skills, they're learnable, but it's really, are you open enough to change your mindset to really take that on? Yeah. Servant leadership. I agree a hundred percent with that. So uh, just as a, as a kind of a pivot point, I just want the listeners to know they can learn more about the book at crackingtheleadershipcode.com. I'm sure it's available on all the normal uh, outlets, it but, is. Uh, but, but there's the website if people want to take a look at it. So, you know, you mentioned two things uh, during your introduction um, that we have in common. Uh, one was, you know, we both spent some time in the theater. We've both spent some time studying psychology, but there's a third thing that you and I discovered that we have in common. Uh, you want to tell the listeners what that is? Yeah, sure thing. So we both have in common that we have parents who are Holocaust survivors. Um, so that, which is no small thing when you find out later on. Um, so yeah, so my mother, who was born in 1935 in Belgium, and my grandmother, who raised her, so my mother was actually in hiding um, from the time she was seven and 42 until 45. She was actually separated and hidden through the Belgian underground, separated from her mother for three years. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I know that your parents are survivors as well. And so it certainly is a legacy that we get to move forward with and learn from. Yeah, exactly. So I, and I appreciate you sharing that. I would love to know, uh, partially as it relates to your book, but you know, as importantly or more importantly, just you as a human, what would you say would be the, some of the things that you, you are grateful for about your family having that legacy? And what are the things that have been maybe challenging for you about that legacy? Sure, sure. So one of the things that I'm really grateful for, and it seems particularly applicable right now in the midst of all of the coronavirus stuff that we're all facing right now, is I grew up with the sense to appreciate everything that you have because you really don't realize how good you have it. Um, you know, that sense of gratitude of f- literally of f- the freedom to walk outside and know that you're not being hunted the way that my mother and my grandmother were literally hunted for their lives. And they were in hiding and had to have false names and identities and have my mom's hair dyed blonde and told, I mean, I think about those stories at the time and they were crazy making. And I just think about now how many of us are so feeling like these are crazy days that we're living in. And I feel like I'm so grateful for appreciating just the gifts that we have, whether that's of health, of family, of love, to, like, to realize that all of, I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy your shiny, glittery things, but realize that sort of really isn't the point because all that can go away. I saw a, a post on Facebook uh, recently which is like, hey, we're at war, you know, with this corona thing. And, you know, your your grandparents went to war and they had to storm the the shores of Normandy. And all you got to do is like sit on the couch and don't infect anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it puts even this, you know, catastrophic event into perspective. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. So I'd say for me, just the gratitude and the appreciation of that. And I think also... What are, where are your priorities? Because I think for me, 
it has helped me to align my life choices even before this week um, with who I am, right? So since I was a little kid, like what's important to me and not try to follow the mainstream drummer of, oh, I need to achieve this because I need to have this title or this job or this house or this car or this wife or, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the peer pressure of society around us. And my grandmother, particularly, who in some ways was my primary parent, really asked me and challenged me to stay true to who I was and what I was about and to discover who that was. And that took some time to figure out. So I'd say those were some, some of the top positive sides. And, and what do you, well, before I ask you what you were challenged by, um, I will say one of the things I'll add to that, and I completely agree with the gratitude piece. You know, I, I often refer to my dad who, you know, he sees a, a half rotten apple and he sees half a good apple. You know, yeah, exactly. you and me probably, you know, you look in the fridge and an apple's half rotten. You're like, oh, that's going in the trash, you know, yeah, but exactly. he, he, he doesn't see it that way. But the other thing that I, I got from them, I think that I'm sure you got as well is that as, and as it relates to what we're going through right now, culturally is resiliency. It, I, they are a reference point to me, my parents, so that when I'm going through a hard time, like we all are right now, you know, from a health scare to the economy and all the impacts our kids being home from school, all that stuff, it still gives me a vantage point to go like, wow, you know, they had to be resilient through that experience. This experience that we're going through, I can, I can do this. It, give, it just gives perspective on, on that that I think often others maybe don't have who've had a more traditional upbringing. Yeah, yeah. I think the perspective on resiliency is, is absolutely because it becomes this frame to kind of compare things to. And I find that I come back to that on a, on a regular basis. And certainly the times that we're living in, particularly today, are even that much more of a test of that, for sure. Absolutely. So um, do you feel, so, you know, the, another thing that we had in common is we were both raised by our grandmother, because that was my case as well. Yeah. So there's now four things. But, you know, you talked earlier on about being drawn to the theater and doing some, uh, being interested in the study of psychology. Do you think those two things were a direct relation to you know your your mother having gone through what she went to was it spurred by that oh i definitely think so i think for me particularly when it looked at looking at psychology and theater and I, I think for me in terms of theater it was actually probably my way to try to access certain emotional parts of myself that i felt cut off from that i felt in some ways i what i didn't give myself permission to feel certain things and yet when I was suddenly now in character or playing a role, I had this chance to kind of feel like I was more in touch with a broader range of human experience. So that's one thing that I was definitely interested in. And, and I think also certainly studying drama and seeing great dramas, whether they're Shakespeare or Ibsen or Chekhov or Pinter, is you know there are these massive archetypal stories that express the human experience that, you know, if you've ever come away from a great work of theater or a great movie and you feel moved and changed, that impacts us. And I think we learn and grow and develop and we become more human. We become more empathic. And I think if I look at the common thread of all my work, whether there's been through leadership training or theater or teaching, it's wanting to connect people to helping people to connect to their own brilliance. I mean, the fact is, 
we have this gift of being in this physical body for, you know, a relatively short amount of time. If you look at the millions of years of universe, I mean, it's pretty miraculous that we're all incarnated in this way. And so for me, it's just how can we make the most of what we have in the time that we have it? And I guess that in some ways is that's definitely impacted through the experience from my both my mother, my grandmother, as well as being really connected to the fact that so much of the rest of the family didn't make it and they were killed. And so I feel like this, it's almost this obligation to kind of live a life of joy, purpose, and meaning because they didn't get to. And uh, I guess just to, uh, for a gratuitous segue into my, my show theme, do you feel like that gratitude and, and the other attributes you just mentioned, do you feel like there's choice around that? Meaning, can you, do you continually steer yourself and remind yourself to choose that? Or is it a natural occurrence for you? You know, I feel lucky that a lot of it early on felt natural, that I just felt moving towards figuring out who I was early on. And at the same time, there have definitely been choice points along the way where I've had to go, am I going to stick with this and kind of stick to this conformist track or am I going to go and find my own way? So for example, when I first started in the field of leadership training, I worked as an employee for a training company and there was aspects of it that were great. And I learned a lot uh, in terms of experience. And I also felt a bit stuck in terms of my own professional growth and development and realized I was hitting a limit. And the secure, safe part of me was saying, what are you going to quit and start on your own? You're crazy. You know, you've got health benefits and a 401k and a steady salary. You can't do that, right? All of my risk aversion was way up. And I have a high degree of risk aversion. So, you know, and I, when I finally did make the leap to kind of go off on my own, you know, there's a part of me that went, why didn't you do this five or 10 years ago? But I didn't because I wasn't ready for it. But part of it was coming back to those clear choices of, do I have this choice to be able to do that? And, you know, there are other times in my life. So for example, when my wife and I decided we wanted to have kids, we were living in New York City, which is most people know, one of the most expensive places to live in the world. And kind of looking at the quality of life and what was important to us. And we decided to move out of New York. And also at the time, I made some choices from a work perspective, where I realized, you know, I can continue to work a lot and try to earn more money or I could cut back because we were going to have small kids at home and have more time. Yeah. And so I made, a, I made a very clear choice to choose time over money. And I was okay with driving my used car yet another year because it kept running and I didn't need a new shiny one. I was okay with that because at the end of the day, I'm not going to look back and go, gosh, you know, I wish I had spent more time with my kids when they were little because I did. You know, I, I took three months off unpaid when they were both born because that was really important. And then when I went back to work, I didn't, I was working, you know, five or six training days a month. So I was, I was home a good amount of time. Now, is there a perfect balance? I don't think there ever is perfection, you know, and certainly my wife and I have tried to, we've struggled with that whole 50, 50 parenting thing. And it didn't work out the way we had hoped for sure. And I think we have along the way continued to make some choices about what's true in terms of our values and trying to live those values out rather than getting caught up in someone else's values. And it sounds like those choices you made are very much in alignment with your values, which 
you know, is, is, is I think something people are always striving and struggling to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think this is a good time before we pivot away from the, that, that Holocaust theme that we, that thread that we have together. I want to share with you the quote that I selected for you today and just sort of get your feedback and thoughts. Great. People came up to me in tears and recognition. I met the daughter of a survivor of the Warsaw ghetto whose mother refused to ever talk about it and insisted she had no right to ask questions. She said it was nonsense that her daughter would have a part of her own history since her life and her daughter's were separate. It was her way of coping with the past. How does that land on you when you think about your discovery around your mom's experience? Wow. Well, I, as you say that, I think how much time do we have? Because God, that is a rich, rich quote. And also it just, in terms of my mom's experience, because one thing we haven't touched on at all has been the journey that I've had over the last 10 years with great help from my wife, who's been our family genealogist is learning about my grandfather, my mother's mm-hmm. father, who mm-hmm. I knew nothing about until literally five years ago mm-hmm. and digging and research and archives and people helping learned so much. And it's interesting because thinking that stories can be separate is like thinking that you can separate out the ocean to me. It's that, you know, all of our stories are so connected and particularly family stories are so linked. And what I've even discovered stuff, I was just down at the Holocaust Museum in Belgium two weeks ago and discovered new things about my grandmother that I never knew, like that she had remarried after my grandfather died and then they separated and she never told us. And yet this truth has come out 70 years, 60 years later. Um, it's just amazing. So, you know, stories have a life of their own. And I know that, you know, we think we're trying to protect those that we love, but there's something about sunlight being this amazing disinfectant, right? That the truth is going to find a way. And, you know, I think so many of us, we're, we're concerned and scared that people will see us for with our mistakes, yet mistakes are part of the process of being human. And I can look at my grandmother with compassion. I mean, there's so many amazing things. I mean, my grandmother has a police record because she worked the black market. I mean, there's just the amazing things that people did in incredibly crazy times of war. I'm just, yeah, so your quote really, really resonates for me around, yeah, I think the stories that we weave, and I always believe that there's always a story behind the story and, and understanding the deeper stories is what allows us to move forward. You know, I'm a big, my, my life mission is around kindling the fire of brilliance in people, mm-hmm. right? And the thing is you can't kindle fire without taking some dead wood and burning it. And I think part of learning our stories is to look at the past and see what's died. And so we can use that as fuel to help us moving forward. There's a, there's a lot in what you just said, but there's a couple nuggets that really I want to highlight that stood out for me. So, you know, one is you just talked about trying to separate stories and how they're in this inseparable sea. So that, yeah. that, that's just a, a visual that really works for me. And you, and you talked about the, the link of, of this family history and how it's all connected. And that takes me right back to what we're going through in the world right now, how we are all very interdependent on each other right now to stop the spread of this, this disease and, you know, uh, consuming the news. I'm trying not to consume too much, but I have to consume some, I think, to be informed. And, you know, I'm seeing places in the country here in the United States where, where people are just like still going to the beach and doing things like normal and, 
going to the restaurants that are open. If you're in a community where restaurants are open and I feel like it's, um, it's not continuing that link that we all need to be conscious of right now to take care of each other. Cause you know, yeah, if you're a 30 year old person, you know, maybe this isn't going to impact you, but you being a carrier can impact others. And so that link is really important right now. So I really, that, that, that's what came up for me when you said that. And then the last thing is, um, you know, our deeper selves. I think that, you know, you talked about sharing our, our deeper selves with each other. And I think that goes right back to your book and the leadership piece of like, really being open and honest with, with our people on the good side, the bad side, you know, our concerns, et cetera. It, uh, it just brings us all together. I think when we do that. Yeah, it's completely, completely. And yeah, what you said about the sense that, you know, that some people somehow are living in this myth that they can just do their own thing. I mean, you know, all of the major religious and philosophical traditions around the world, it doesn't matter which one, but they all talk about this interdependency of, of humans and, and this coronavirus is obviously testing us, you know, as a species to recognize the power of our interdependence, you know, and almost this, you know, the idea that we're somehow these individual isolated beings, like the myth of that is really coming together. It's just how much we are connected. And obviously we're in early days of this still, but it'll be interesting to see what the impact will be when we get to the other side of this. How will people's values and behaviors and policies and and things like that change to support the importance of our interdependency. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I don't know if this is a good idea or not to bring up, but as you were talking, it kind of made me feel like, you know, I've seen, and this is not a judgment on, uh, it's not a judgment. I'll just leave it at that. I think yeah. that's the easiest way to put it. It's not a judgment, but you know, I see, I hear some people talking about like, Oh, well, you know, we need to pray and yeah, go ahead, pray. That's fine. You know, meditate, pray, connect with your, your faith in any way you want to. But another thing that's really good is like, don't get infected, right? Like, you know, use science, follow science, you know, separate, use the social distancing and, you know, go ahead and pray, but let's just not get infected. Like that's number one. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And how do you, and, and, and realizing, you know, a lot of people want easy answers and they want singular answers. So we want to think, you know, I'll just do this. Or I'll, and the fact is we need science. And if you want prayer, have prayer for sure. And don't discount the science because of your faith. You know, it can be a both and world. It doesn't need to be an either or world. And I think exactly. a lot of leaders, you know, the next generation of leaders need to learn how to embrace paradox and deal better with ambiguity. Because let's face it. The world is messy and no one knows how this is going to shake out in four months, six months, a year from now. And we have to be as open to the science and the reason as we can. Yeah. Now, so I think up till now in, in, in so far in this episode, like we've, we put a real human and authentic face on some pretty heavy subjects, you know, I mean, you yeah. know, leadership's heavy and what's going on in the world is heavy and the Holocaust is heavy, but I think it's all been real. So I want to like transition in the latter part of our episode here to something a little bit more lighthearted that you've done. Sure. Like I said, you know, um, at the beginning, you know, there's kind of three themes in the show. And the last theme is, you know, you lived in the United States and not too long ago, you and your family uprooted yourselves and you moved to the Netherlands. And that, that's an interesting pivot. I, I know it's, you know, I've talked about that on my show with other guests before people who've made that kind of pivot. So Talk to us a little bit about how you made that choice and how that has worked out for you guys so far. 
Sure. So, I mean, you've heard a little of my family history. So I'm raised, I'm an American born in New York City, but it was raised by European immigrants, my mother, my grandmother, and my wife, who is also American. Before she and I met, she had lived in Europe for six years and she had floated the idea of moving to Europe early in our relationship before we had kids. And I said, that sounds all great, fine. But again, Mr. Risk Averse here was like, well, how's it going to work? You know, what am I going to do for work? How's money going to work? How are we going to live? How are we going to do it legally? All the doubt, doubt, doubt questions came up. And so put it off. And then we had kids. And then we got busy with little infants and toddlers at home. And they kept getting older. And she'd bring it up again. I'd say, that sounds good. But we've got kids. And I don't understand. That sounds good. And I kept putting it off. And the kids kept getting older and older. And I guess about the time my son was 11 or 12, and my daughter was eight or nine, I realized that, you know, if I keep putting this off, they're going to grow up. This is never going to happen. And I realized that at a certain point, I was never going to be able to figure out all of the different pieces of this puzzle in advance. The way I like to describe it is that, you know, if everyone in the world decided to have children, but they were going to wait until they had it all figured out before they have kids, we would have a generation without children. Well, you stole, you stole my comment. Exactly. I was going to interject and say, yeah, if I waited till the right time to have kids, I'd, you know, I'd be a 55 year old guy with no kids. Exactly. And moving abroad is the same way. It's just at a certain point, you've got to take this leap of faith. So I had a few global contacts and the way it was, I worked, we worked it out. Why we ended up in the Netherlands was because Well, first of all, we had kids. We were going to bring our kids with us and we were going to put them in an international school. But to do that, we needed to live somewhere legally. And you can't just up and move to a country without legal residence status. Turns out that the Netherlands and the U.S. have this little known agreement, which is called the Dutch-American Friendship Treaty, which basically, if you open up the equivalent of a small business like an LLC in the Netherlands, you can get a residence permit. So that's how we chose ending up here. The other big advantage to being here is that while all the Dutch people speak wonderful Dutch, about 99.8% of them speak impeccable English. So it made it to be a very easy transition. I've found that certain countries, they, uh, they speak better English than most Americans. <laughs> yeah, they do a great job. And it's funny because I've tried to learn some Dutch and the Dutch, they're, they're great because as soon as I start to try to speak Dutch and they can hear that I'm a non-native speaker, they just say, oh, let's just talk in English. It's just so much easier. So, <laughs> so it makes it really hard to learn to speak Dutch because they say, oh, it's a more small country. We'll just go ahead and speak English. It's okay. So you made this choice to move there. What are some of the experiences you've had or choices you've made there that when you move back to the United States, which I'm assuming is going to happen one day. It is um, going to happen. Yeah. That w- what are some of the choices you think that you'll say, hey, you know, we want to keep this part of our life or lifestyle or habits that we form in the Netherlands. We're going to choose to take that back to America with us. Oh, Rob, that is a great question. So the number one thing, if people say, what do you love about living in the Netherlands? Frankly, the biggest thing, it's the bicycling. So we live in a city of 100,000 people called Leiden. It's just south of Amsterdam. And we don't have a car here. Now, in, in the States, we had two cars. We had a minivan and a sedan. And we were shuttling our kids all over the place, as is a pretty typical American experience for most people. And over here, we haven't had a car. We've had four bicycles from the get-go. And there's public transportation. And we are going to, when we come back, try to find more ways to incorporate pedal-powered, human-powered transit into our lives, is that I think all of us have just loved the experience. Now, granted, things are built much more here to a human scale, so it facilitates that. But where we lived in Western Massachusetts, we live in a town where we can bike to places more, at least eight, nine, ten months of the year we can get around. 
And so there are ways that I think we're going to incorporate that. We've already talked about, you know, panniers, the kind of saddlebags you put on the back of your bike, that we could take those to the grocery store. And here we have a smaller fridge. So we don't have, you know, we don't do the massive U.S. grocery shopping. We buy in smaller quantities and we're at the store more often. You're not going to Costco, Netherlands? We are not going to Costco in Netherlands. Exactly. We're not stocking up on this, trusting that it'll be there tomorrow. And so that is one of the biggest things. There's something about just the motion of that is just terrific. It's terrific. I have a serious question. This is, you know, I'm not joking. What's the toilet paper situation like over there? So far, rolls are to be had. We're we're okay. <laughs> so there are still rolls of toilet paper around. So no, everyone's been pretty great about keeping up with just buying what they need at this point. We've had a couple of runs on things, but then they get replenished. And I think people are getting the hint that the supply chains are still working just fine. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, so last question about the Netherlands, what is the thing you miss about the United States the most? I think for me, the thing I miss the most is access to nature. I mean, this country is very small and it's very dense population per capita, right? So small and where we are, it's so it's, I mean, they have very nice manicured urban parks, but there's no real wilds to speak of. And there's something about, again, I was in Western Massachusetts. We have the Pioneer Valley and the mountains and the rivers and just being able to get lost a little bit further in nature and being alone more. I miss that sense. So, you know, you've been fascinating. You've been a great guest. We covered a lot more than I'm usually able to cover in one call because of the the intersection of various topics that are relevant to you and what's going on in the world and also connected to me in some regards. What what have we not talked about that you want to make sure you share with the listeners of Clear Choices? Gosh, I mean, there's there's so much. I mean, well, we've not. That's a great question. You know, it's a question I ask oftentimes, by the way. That's what we've not covered. It's a great consultant question you got there, Rob. Excellent. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of, I would say, you know, wherever you are in your life, you know, all leadership development starts with personal development. And I had a mentor who said, you know, work harder on yourself than on your job. And I think it, you know, certainly my, my book, Cracking the Leadership Code, is a reference, but it's one reference. There's a lot of references out there, a lot of resources out there. I mean, we live in this age where access to resources to better ourselves is so easy, just a mouse click away. And so I would say, you know, look for things that you want to develop and also ask for feedback. Ask people around you that you trust that will give you the honest truth if you're working on something, say, I'm working on this. Can you give me some feedback on how I'm doing? Because for my take, the number one thing that we can do to grow is to get feedback and coaching from that outside eye because we're not our own best judges of ourselves. And so if you can find people who can be your cheerleaders and your supports and your coaches, it will be not only will you improve better, but you're going to have more fun doing it. So I would say reach out and keep developing yourself because that's the one resource that will continue to multiply. And it's also, frankly, what else do you get to take off this planet when you're done? You know, it's basically, it's the lives you've touched with the impact you've had. And so if there are ways that you can grow the impact you have, why wouldn't you, you know? I mean, our world, our world needs stronger leaders and now's the time. Yeah, and everything you just said in that, those closing remarks, you know, really resonates with me. I, I couldn't agree more that we have to always be on a constant process of being in process. Uh, and also, 
you know, I, I was going to say it and, and you uh, appropriately beat me to it. And that is uh, one of those ways to grow ourselves is to pour into others. And, and right now, that's what our world needs more than ever right now in this moment is us pouring into and caring for others. So I can hear in everything that you've said today that you're someone who does that. I appreciate your contribution, not only through your book and through the work you do, but uh, through your sharing today. Uh, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Rob, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure as well. Clear Choices listeners, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, as we've been doing a lot of recently, feel free to go to Clear Choices on Facebook, add questions and comments. I want to do another mailbag issue soon. I love getting the questions and interaction I had from many of you. That's a, a, of great value and it's a lot of fun for me to look at some of the things that are on your mind. So go to Clear Choices and continue to listen and don't forget to buy the wonderful book that we've been discussing today. Thanks again for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.